tonight. Looking forward to sharing a meal with you. I know those smells maybe make listening to this a little bit difficult, but we'll uh, we'll try to focus our attention on on this, and then we'll go eat a meal together. Let's start with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for your Son. Thank you that your love was so great that it was demonstrated through your willingness to rescue those that were hopeless and helpless and hell-bound apart from you doing something to deal with their sin debt that they each owed. That was all of us, every man, woman, and child on planet Earth. Thank you that your way of rescue was simple, that it, it, it took us out of the equation altogether and provided a perfect substitute in the form of your son's death, burial, and resurrection on our behalf. Thank you that through simple faith in what you've already done for us, we can be born into your family if we will just accept that payment as satisfying our debt and applying that gift of your son's life to our account so that we could have a life we deserve, uh, sorry, a life we don't deserve in place of the death we do. Thank you that you made it that simple that children could understand it, that if they would just believe in what you've done for them, they could be saved and that they could know that one day they'll go to spend all of eternity with you. Pray that we could celebrate that, celebrate that there's nothing more to add to something that's already perfect. Pray that we would understand that a gift has to be freely given and freely received and pray that we would just take it. We put all of our eggs in that basket, put our confidence in your finished work on our behalf. Pray that as Christians, as your children, through faith in that finished work, we would enjoy this time we could spend together with others of like precious faith, that you would encourage our hearts through your word, that this would be a time that is uplifting, that is a time that is even challenging and convicting as we look at your word, that we could come here with ears that want to hear and minds that want to learn something about you, that we could draw closer to you through this time spent together. Thank you for all of this in Jesus' name, amen. So as most of you know on our, on our church fellowship nights, We've been working our way through the book of Acts. We're getting towards the end. Tonight, the objective or the goal is to cover a whole chapter. And the title of our study or our devotional tonight is The Shipwrecks of Life. The Shipwrecks of Life. And as I thought about this chapter, Acts chapter 27, and about even this title, The Shipwrecks of Life, I couldn't help but think, you know, things rarely go as planned in life. Obviously, if you're talking about a shipwreck, that's not necessarily something that you were hoping for or planning for in life. And that's common. In fact, they often go quite badly from a human perspective as you think about the things of life going to plan. Very rarely do they go to plan and very rarely are they particularly positive from a human perspective, the the way things are playing out. A wreck refers to something that is destroyed damaged or broken in life. So if you're thinking about a shipwreck, it's something that is destroyed, damaged, or broken in terms of the ship itself and all those involved in that. But you could take that general term for the wrecks of life, which is what we're ultimately talking about tonight, the wrecks that we face in life, where something is destroyed, damaged, or broken. It's imperfect. And frankly, life is full of various kinds of wrecks as we're thinking about the shipwrecks of life. They're quite common, in fact. And they take many different forms. So you can talk about the wrecks in life. Some of them are physical in nature. Some of them are emotional in nature. Some of them are financial in nature. Some of them are relational. They're based on our relationships in life. And you could say, this is destroyed, damaged, or broken. It's something that's not going the way I hoped it would. So there's all these different facets of life that are subject to not turning out the way that we planned or the way that we hoped. 
And the question isn't really, will there be wrecks in life of various kinds? The question is, how will you respond to the shipwrecks of life? Life is going to have shipwrecks. That's a fact. And anyone who's lived a few years of life knows that they have examples where things didn't go the way they wanted. Things were destroyed or damaged or broken. Some facet of life turned out that way. Even young people can think of things that maybe have already turned out in their lives that were imperfect, were broken, were destroyed or damaged uh, through just the circumstances of life not going the way we wanted them to. And the older you get, the more of those wrecks in life that you can think back to and you could meditate on. So that's, the question isn't, will there be shipwrecks in life? The question is, how will you respond to the shipwrecks of life? Now, the Apostle Paul, who we've been talking about for the last majority here of the time we've been spending in the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul, he was actually literally shipwrecked. And how many of you young people know how many times the Apostle Paul was shipwrecked? How many times do you think he was shipwrecked? Any guesses? We know once. I'm telling you it's at least once. Any other guesses? Five. Five? Less than five. More than one, less than five. Adam, are you guessing? Three. Three. You got it. That's right. The Apostle Paul, and I think it's 1 Corinthians, somewhere around there, he talks about how thrice, three times, he was shipwrecked as he talks about the things that happened in life that didn't go the way he planned. He talks about how many times he was imprisoned, how many times he was beaten, how many times he was shipwrecked. And he says, I was shipwrecked three times. Well, tonight we're going to read about one of them. So let's read how Paul responded to a literal shipwreck in his life. If you're not there already, I hope you can get to Acts 27. We've got a lot of ground to cover here tonight, 44 verses, and you know me. That's not necessarily going to go quickly, but we're going to try tonight to go through this pretty quickly because we want to see an actual shipwreck that Paul faced in life and how he responded in the face of that. So I'm not going to go through the background of how we got here. If you want to know how we got to this part in the story of Paul's life, take a listen to the last family fellowship night or church fellowship night that we had uh, at the beginning of the month of October. And I went through a summary of how we got to where we got to. But Paul, in short, he had requested to go to Rome to appeal his case to Caesar. And... Maybe that wasn't the best decision in hindsight because he was found to be innocent of all of the charges that were brought against him, but he had already requested to appeal his case to Caesar. And so the end of the last chapter, chapter 26, was to Caesar you must go. And so Paul's now going to take this journey to Rome to appeal his case to Caesar. So let's pick up in verse 1. Kids, if you've got Bibles and you can read, this is going to be a good night for that because we're going to read through this whole chapter. And so it starts in verse 1, And when it was decided that we should sail to Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to one named Julius, a centurion of the Augustan regiment. Now, I want to pause right there. Paul is being described as a prisoner here. But as I was thinking about this, was Paul really ever a prisoner of Rome? Was Paul really a Roman prisoner when it got right down to it in a, in a, in a positional way? Was Paul Rome's prisoner? We have a hand. What's your guess? Yeah. yeah, practically he was, but positionally he never was Rome's prisoner. You see, Paul always thought of himself not as a prisoner of Rome, but as a pis- prisoner of who? Jesus. Sorry, they beat you to it there, Owen. I was, I was, I was going to let you do that one, but was that what you were going to say, Owen? Jesus? Paul saw himself in Philemon chapter 1. He describes himself as a prisoner of Jesus Christ. 
So this is going to be a little bit of a foreshadowing for you about how he deals with the shipwreck that he goes to face in life, this actual shipwreck. Paul was a prisoner of Rome practically, but positionally he saw his mission or his function or his focus was on being a prisoner of Jesus Christ, meaning he wanted his life to be spent serving Jesus. And so as a prisoner of Jesus Christ, who did Paul think was in control of his life? Owen. Jesus, right? So if he was a prisoner of Jesus Christ, then he viewed himself as having Jesus Christ being in control of his life. So if Jesus Christ was in control of his life, is that going to affect how he faces the trials and the hard things and the storms and the shipwrecks in life, do you think? Do you think that will affect how he sees things? Yes, it will. If that's how he sees himself as a prisoner of Christ, he sees himself at other times as a beloved of Christ. He sees himself at other times as a doulos or a a servant of Christ. He calls himself uh, even a slave for Jesus Christ. He calls himself, he sees himself in light of who he is in Christ. He says, I'm in Christ and Christ is in me. And so in any event, we've got to keep moving. But so he's viewed here as a prisoner. Practically, he was a prisoner of Rome. So entering a ship of Adramatim, that's the best I can do with that. Adramatim, we put to sea, meaning to sail along the coast of Asia. So I'm going to show you a little picture here. It did not turn out as well as I hoped it would. It's a lot clearer on the screen up there, but it's fuzzy here for whatever reason. But here's where we're going to be starting from. Uh, we're this green, this green line here coming up from here, and we're going to be sailing here. He wants to sail on the coast here. This is the part we're talking about right there. Okay. All right. So that was the plan to sail along the coast of Asia. Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica, was with us. And the next day we landed at Sidon. So it didn't take that long to get to Sidon right here. You know, they started here. They made it up to here. So he's starting from roughly here in Caesarea up to Sidon. That's where they got on the first day. All right. And Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him liberty to go to his friends and receive care. So this person that was put in charge of Paul was very friendly to him. And so he went and visited some of his believer friends while he was there in Sidon. So we don't really hear about a church at Sidon, but at least we know there was believers in Sidon. So it's fair to assume there was actually a small church there in Sidon as well. And when we had put to sea from there, we sailed under the shelter of Cyprus because the winds were contrary. And when we had sailed over the sea, which is off Sicilia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra, a city of Lycia. So here's where we got to. We took shelter on this side where the water was smaller water, meaning not as wide. We came around behind Cyprus. He came up here to Myra. That's where he's gotten so far in our journey. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing to Italy. So they had to switch ships and he put us on board. When we had sailed slowly many days and arrived with difficulty off Snidus, the wind not permitting us to proceed, we sailed under the shelter of Crete off of Salmon. Passing it with, with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens near the city of Lycia. So now we've come from up in here. And the, the original plan was to come off of this side of Crete, but the winds didn't allow for that, so they came around the corner here of Crete to this area of Fair Havens. They're not 100% sure it is, where it is, but somewhere in here. This is where the trip is not going well already. You see how it said, sailing slowly for many days. It talks about much difficulty. The wind did not permit us to proceed. And anyway, they came to that place there 
on this side of the island of Crete, here's where it is, and it's only going to get worse from here. Now, when much time had been spent and sailing was now dangerous because the fast was already over, they talk about this being in approximately October to November. This was when the shipping season was not advised and actually usually shut down completely until about February. But Paul advised them saying, man, I perceive that the voyage will end with disaster and much loss. Um, Some say, is this something that the Spirit of God put on his heart or is this just his opinion based on the common understanding that this is a terrible time in the year to be traveling these waters. But anyway, he says to them, this is not what I would recommend. Not only the cargo on the ship, but also our lives will be in danger in verse 10 there, he's saying. Now, nevertheless, the centurion was more persuaded by the helmsman and the owner of the ship than by the things spoken by Paul. Does that happen in life where we have a perspective that goes ignored and leads to some kind of a wreck uh, because we actually had good intuition or good or a good um, understanding of the dangers of things, but somebody else didn't take that advice and then it ends up affecting our lives. Now, adults, you understand that probably more than you young people. Very often that's the case where things in our life turn out somewhat tragic or turn out differently than we wanted them to, not even necessarily through any doing on our own part but because others are involved in our lives and their decisions end up impacting us just as much as our own decisions end up impacting us. So the majority rules. So the majority said that where we're at right now here in, in Fair Havens is not a good place to spend the winter. And so verse 12, and because the harbor was not suitable to winter in, the majority advised to sail from there also, if by any means they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete opening toward the southwest and northwest and winter there. So there wasn't that much of a disagreement. Here they are in Fair Havens. The idea is to come up to a better little bay here off of Crete, which was less than a day away, and to shelter here for the winter. And then to not risk this passage until the weather was more amenable later on in the year. So that's the idea. We're just going to come from here to here. And that way we'll find a better shelter for the winter. Well, we see it doesn't turn out that way. When the south wind blew softly, so they waited for good weather, supposing that they had obtained their desire, putting out to sea, they sailed close by Crete. But not long after, a a tempestuous headwind arose called, whatever, Euroclidon. So when the ship was caught and could not head into the wind, we let her drive. Meaning, if a ship was, in these days, they weren't made with the technology that they are today. When the wind wouldn't cooperate, you really had no choice but to just, in many ways, let the wind blow the boat instead of having the sails ripped and have the the ship torn apart. You had to just kind of ride it out. And running under the shelter of an island called Clada, we secured the skiff... And the skiff is the ship's lifeboat, so they secured that to the deck of the boat with difficulty. Now, sometimes they would tow those kind of behind the boat, and now they're putting it on the deck because things are getting ugly, so they're going to secure it to the boat itself. When they had taken it on board, they used cables to then undergird the ship. Now, this is what happened. Kids, picture this. You're on a ship. These ships are not made like they are today. Imagine that you're in a storm. Things are not looking good. Their solution was to wrap ropes around the ship, ropes around the ship, ropes around the ship from front to back, make it look like a cocoon where they would keep tying ropes around the boat with the idea that we could somehow tie this thing together and help hold this boat together in the storm. Now, that, would that give you a lot of confidence if you were trying to tie the boat you were on together? Uh, it wouldn't give me a lot of confidence, but that's what they ended up doing here. So they tried to undergird the ship with these cables, with these ropes. 
And fearing lest they should run aground, on the Certus stands they struck sail, and so were driven. And because we were exceedingly tempest-tossed, the next day they lightened the ship. They started throwing their precious cargo overboard uh, because things were not looking too good. Now, in life, do, do you get it to a place where the ship hasn't even wrecked yet, but you can tell that you're in the middle of this thing, you're in the middle of a storm, that you're being tossed to and fro, that you're being tempest-tossed by life? Are there times that that happens and then it gets even worse from there? And the answer is yes. Life can build up to a climax sometime with some of the hard things that we're going through. So they lighten the ship. On the third day, we threw the ship's tackle overboard with our own hands. And there's some disagreement about what that means, but some think that means they threw some of the sails overboard. Some think they threw some of the main masts that would hold the sails, that they threw those overboard to get some of that weight off of the ship because now they're just trying to survive. They've already lost the cargo, thrown the cargo overboard. Now they're starting to throw parts of the ship overboard. Does this look very good? No. Now when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest beat on us, all hope that we would be saved was finally given up. Given up by whom? Well, primarily given up by those that were on board. Do you think Paul was in distress right now? He might have been, but was Paul somebody who had learned to trust his God? Yes. And what had God told Paul? Where had Paul told, God told Paul he was going? Rome. So whether he ended up getting taken there by a great fish, whether he ended up getting taken there by swimming or paddling a piece of the broken ship, did Paul, do you think, believe he was on his way to Rome? Because he had a promise keeping God, right? He had a God that had been faithful in the past and who Paul believed would be faithful in the future. We're going to see that that was true in a second here. But everyone else had given up hope. It says, in verse 21, but after long abstinence from, from food, then Paul stood in the midst of them and said, men, you should have listened to me. Is there a place to ha- for I told you so? <laughs> apparently, apparently in life, you're not always wrong to say to somebody, I told you so, because Paul says that right here. Men, you should have listened to me and not have sailed from Creed and incurred this disaster and loss. And now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you but only of the ship. Now, how could he know that? Verse 23, For there stood by me this night an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve. Now, I have to pause there. Listen to how Paul describes his God kids. An angel appeared to Paul of the God to whom I belong. I belong to God. I belong to the king. I'm a child of a king. There's a lot of ways of saying this, but I'm not some random person anymore. I'm a child of God's. Beloved, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we could be called children of God? Young people, adults, you can think of yourself positionally. You are a child of God. And if you're a child of God, then I belong to the king. That's when Paul has that mentality of I'm a slave or I'm a servant. I'm a prisoner of Jesus Christ. That's to whom I belong. Now, what else does he say? The God to whom I belong and whom I serve. Was Paul confused about his purpose? Was he confused about his mission? Was he confused about why he was on this earth? No, it was to belong to the king and then to serve God, to serve him. So he says, an angel appeared to me, and this is the message that Paul got from God. Do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar. 
God had already said that to him. He reminds of him of that in the face of a storm. Now, I'll ask you this. Does God remind us of his promises in the storms that we're going through in life? Yeah, he does. If we'll look at his word, if we'll read his word, he reminds us of the promises that he's already made to us. This isn't new information. God had already told Paul, you will go to Rome to preach my name, to be a messenger for me. And so God reminds of the, uh, him of that. And indeed, God has granted you all those who sail with you, meaning I'm not only going to save you, Paul, I'm going to save everyone who's with you. So Paul in verse 25 says, Therefore, take heart, men. Now, how could he say that in response to God's promise? Because he says, I believe, God, that it will be just as it was told me. Would God's promise have done Paul any good if he didn't believe God? No. The reason he has no fear is because when God tells him something, he believes his God. And in believing God, he finds peace and comfort and confidence in the face of the storm that he's in. All of the promises in the Bible will do you absolutely no good if you don't take them to heart and you don't believe God when he says that these things are so. If we don't learn to take God at his word, we can't be comforted by his promises. But when God makes a promise, can we count on that, kids? Can we count on God's promises? Yes. Yeah, we can count on them. And why? Because God is a promise-keeping God. He's always faithful. He never fails, and he never changes. So verse 26, however, we must run aground on a certain island. Oh, boy. Okay, so there's a promise made of rescue, but it's going to involve running our ship on ground. Now, when the 14th night had come, this has been a long time, and we were driven up and down in the Adriatic Sea, meaning they didn't even go in one direction, up and down. About midnight, the sailors sensed that they were drawing near some land, and they took soundings and found it to be 20 fathoms, about 120 feet, and when they had gone a little farther, they took soundings again and found it to be 15 fathoms, about 90 feet. Then, fearing lest we should run aground on the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, when they had let down the skiff into the sea under pretense of putting out anchors from the prow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the skiff and let it fall off. Listen, when God says he's going to provide a way of rescue, it's his way of rescue or it's no way of rescue. You see, some of these men wanted to try to escape in the little lifeboat. And Paul said, no, God has promised us rescue, but that rescue is not going to be available if we try to circumvent God and find rescue through our own human thinking and our own intuition. So these guys were going to try to find rescue a different way. Even, that, even though God had already told Paul, it's going to involve running the ship aground and everyone's going to be saved, but not the boat. We don't need, God doesn't need you to come up with a different rescue plan than what he already has for you. So we can't dwell on that or we won't get through theirs, but there's a lot of principles right there to meditate on. So they cut the skiff loose. I'm sure those, I'm sure those men were very upset because they saw that as their way of escape. And as the day was about to dawn, verse 33, Paul implored them all to take food, saying, Today is the 14th day you have waited and continued without food and eaten nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take nourishment, for this is for your survival, since not a hair will fall from the head of any of you. Now listen, <laughs> they are in a raging storm. They can't even see the shore. They are about to, we're going to see, run up onto a reef. But they don't know that yet. 
Paul's saying, take in some sustenance, you're going to need it. And he says, not one hair from your head is going to be lost. How could Paul be so confident about that? Owen, you want to take a stab at it? Because God had made a promise to him, right? He had said, everybody's going to be rescued. And can we take God at his word? Yes, we can. Does that mean we always will? No. A lot of times God makes promises to us and we just won't trust him. A lot of times we're facing storms in our life and God says, I can rescue you. I got a plan of rescue for you. Will you trust me? And we say, no. No, I'm going to lean on my own understanding here. I'm going to try to make my own way of escape. And friends, when we try to make our own way of escape, it's like being on a ship like this in a, in a storm and trying to make a way of escape out of pieces of cardboard. That's the kind of plans we come up with. They're not going to be effective plans anyway. And God's saying, forget your plans. Trust me with the promises that I've already made to you. I'm the faithful God here. There's nothing about you that's trustworthy or reliable. There's no reason to depend on yourself. Trust me instead. And so verse 35, and when he had said these things, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of all of them. And when he had broken it, he began to eat. Then they were all encouraged and also took food themselves. You see, a good attitude is contagious. You see that there? 37. And in all, we were 276 persons on the ship. So some of you maybe weren't picturing this quite right. 276 souls were at risk here in this storm. That's a lot of people on a ship. That's a tremendous number of lives that are hanging in the balance, and they're only going to be rescued if God undertakes to do it. So when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship and threw out the wheat into the sea. When it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they observed a bay with a beach onto which they planned to run the ship if possible. And they let go the anchors and left them in the sea. Meanwhile, loosing the rudder ropes, and they hoisted the mainsail to the wind and made for the shore. But striking a place where two seas met, they ran the ship aground, and the prow stuck fast and remained immovable. But the stern was being broken up by the violence of the waves. So here they are stuck. They're stuck out to sea. They didn't make it to land. Just as Paul said would happen, that it would involve the ship being beached effectively. And so here we go, verse 42. And the soldiers plan was to kill the prisoners lest any of them should swim away and escape but the centurion wanting to save paul kept them from their purpose and commanded that those who could swim should jump overboard first and get to land now question why do you think the centurion wanted to save paul why do you think that was sorry calvin say it again Maybe because he had determined that he was innocent. That could be. I think that's part of what I was getting at, which is Paul had obviously, or probably, he had been a good testimony to this centurion. So the centurion didn't think of him as an evil person, but he looked at him as somebody who was a man of faith, somebody who was probably innocent of the charges that had been brought against him. Maybe he had heard Paul speak at the trials. Maybe he had been around when Paul was defending himself. Maybe he had been watching Paul's conduct, watching how Paul spoke, watching how Paul acted. And he was influenced by that in a way where he really ended up liking Paul. You saw that at the beginning of the story where he let Paul go visit his friends right at the beginning of the trip. 
So in any event, that's somewhat speculation, but I think your testimony matters. That's what I would take away from that, is that Paul had been a testimony to this man. So he tells those who can swim to jump overboard first and get to land, and the rest, some on boards and some on parts of the ship. So how does it end? And so it was that they all escaped safely to land. So there's 44 verses that we've kind of flown through here. But here's the question. Who was in control here? Who was in control? Let's try here. God was in control. Was Paul in control of this circumstance? No. Were the Romans in control of this circumstance? No. You can all just shout out for some of these questions. Paul wasn't in control? No. The soldiers weren't in control? No. The sailors weren't in control? It was God who was in control of this situation. So can you control the storms in your life? That's the nature of storms. You have no control over them. But what can you control? You can control your response to the storms of life. Life is going to have train wrecks and car wrecks and shipwrecks. Life is going to have hard things in it. Are you going to be able to control all of those things? No, in fact, you'll be able to control hardly any of them. But you can control how you're going to respond to the shipwrecks in your life. Your options are going to be simple. Am I going to trust myself? Am I going to look at my circumstances? Am I going to trust others? Or am I going to trust my God to get me through this shipwreck that I'm facing here? So that's the question. How are you going to respond to the shipwrecks in your life? And by God's grace, I hope that we learn something from Paul's example here. And we respond by, what did he say? Believing God. He believed God when God said, I'm going to take care of this. Just trust me. Did Paul know how he was going to do that? No. But did God do it? Some people swimming, some people floating on pieces of the ship. One way or the other, God saved all of those people. And he can rescue and save you in the shipwrecks of your life too. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for your son. Thank you for your love. Thank you for this opportunity to gather here with believers from our church and even some visitors that are with us tonight. Thank you that you're so amazing that you demonstrate your love to us each and every day by providing for us what we could never provide for ourselves. Pray that we would learn to trust you, that we would give you the shipwrecks in our life that we're facing, the storms in our life that we're facing, that we would look to you in those things knowing that you're the only one who can provide a way through that. You're the only one who can rescue us through that. Though you won't take away the storms as you didn't hear, though you won't eliminate the shipwreck which you didn't hear, but you will be faithful to rescue us, at least in a spiritual plane, in those circumstances in life. Pray that we would just trust you with that. Now, thank you for this food that you've given us here tonight. Pray that we would be thankful for it. Pray that we would be thankful for all of the people who put a lot of hard work into bringing supplies and putting the meal together. Pray that we would appreciate that. Thank you for those individuals who are willing to serve us all in that way. As a tremendous amount of work goes into that, even cleaning up afterwards involves a tremendous amount of work. Thank you for those willing hearts. Pray that we could enjoy this time of fellowship. In Jesus' name, amen.